0: This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Content is more than Revit families. If it's digital, Avail can handle it. Learn more at getavail.com. Welcome to the Troxel podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. Well, This is the last episode of 2022, and it's closing out what I would consider a pretty nice run of conversations for everyone to hear and to help elevate these topics in AEC. I thank you all so much for listening and for adding to the conversation, either through sharing the episodes with your friends and colleagues, and for commenting and keeping the conversation going on social media. I'd love to hear what the standout episodes were for you personally. So let me know on Twitter. You can find me at eTroxel or on LinkedIn or leave a comment on this episode at trxl.co slash podcast. Okay, in this episode, I welcome Oliver David Krieg, who is better known as O.D. O.D. is an expert in parametric design and robotic manufacturing in the AEC industry. As Chief Technology Officer at Intelligent City in Vancouver, Canada, He is leading the development of their mass timber technology platform for high-rise construction, combining building systems, manufacturing, and software development. This is part of the company's effort to provide urban housing as a sustainable, affordable, and livable product solution. Prior to joining Intelligent City, O.D. was a doctoral candidate at the Institute for Computational Design and Construction, a.k.a. ICD, at the University of Stuttgart, Germany, there, he led and participated in several international research and built projects that explore architectural potentials in timber construction. In this episode, we discuss topics at the intersection of computational design, robotic fabrication, and turnkey urban housing as a product. We begin with Odie's journey from school at ICD in Germany to where he is currently at Intelligent City, the value and benefits of bottom up as opposed to top down initiatives, moving away from project thinking. To a product company, navigating risk versus reward in manufacturing, design for manufacture and assembly, also known as DFMA, and industrialized construction, prefab in relation to mass timber high rise, density, housing, sustainability, and carbon neutrality, where parametric design fits into this process, the definition of parametric manufacturing and mass customization, what it's like building an industry from scratch, building architecture on top of tech in relation to a tech-first company versus a project-first or architecture-first company, and why systematization must occur before automation. As always, I hope you'll not only find value in this episode for yourself, but that you'll help add value to the profession by sharing it with a friend. You can also really help me out here at the end of 2022 by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find it through the power Of everybody's favorite thing, algorithms. Finally, I have to say thank you once again to Kaizu at Intelligent City for referring OD and for helping make this episode happen. So without further ado, I bring you OD Krieg. Od, welcome. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation. The work that um, I've I've checked out on the Intelligent City website is is fascinating, uh, and it looks like it's been around for a, about a decade, maybe since one of the early projects was done. I don't know. I'm going to let you tell the story here, but this isn't just like a a brand new thing. This is a this is an innovative company that has, looks like it's been incubating for a while. So. I'm excited to hear about that. And and so I'm hoping that you could kind of kick us off by telling us um, how, how you've gotten to to where you are today at Intelligent City, kind of a little bit of your origin story.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, that's correct. Intelligent City has been around for over a decade. The, the idea has probably been around, um, our two co-founders would tell you, um, for over 20 years. Um, I joined in uh, 2018. Um, when the company sort of became a, a venture capital um, oriented startup. Um, before that, um, I worked for um, six or a little longer than six years in um, research in academia. Um, my background is um, um, I'm from Germany. Um, I um, studied in German, in Germany, and um, happened to, during my architecture studies, happened to come across computational design and robotic fabrication. Um, got, kind of got got stuck with that um, topic um, for quite a long time, so much so that I um, did my my PhD in it and and kind of took a very typical, uh, if, if you know a little bit about um, the academia um, scene in architecture or architectural design research, I kind of really went into the trajectory of um, becoming an, an academic um, when I came across um, Oliver Lang, the and Cindy Wilson, the co-founders of Intelligent City, and um, we started talking about um, how some of these technologies that I was researching could be applied in the industry, and then I made that transition, and since then I've been um, working with Intelligent City, starting basically with uh, four or five people, and now we are over 30, um, in developing um, all the technologies um, that Intelligent City uses to deliver basically what we call housing as a as a product, as a complete start-to-end um, delivery process.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And and you studied at the University of Stuttgart in Germany, and it you were. It sounds. I, I would love for you, if you could give kind of a, an idea of what that program is like, as far as robotics and fabrication mm. and computational design. Because I, I'm just interested in hearing kind of the where academia's perspective is in, in different locations. It's that, it sounds fantastic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is very different nowadays than it was, um, when I was a student in, um, that was around 2008 was when the Institute for computational design and construction or ICD in short was founded by professor Achim Menges, um, who is, um, you know, well-known figure in the field, um, and so it was a bit of a celebrity coming to our university, and I was really just very lucky to just have been there when it happened. Mm, um, I would say, yeah, I would, I would say I was always interested a little bit in programming. I learned some PHP programming when I was uh, fifteen, and 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 you know, dabbled a little bit in Cinema 4D and Maya um, early on. So I had some. Um tendency towards um, um, being interested in in programming and technologies and three d modeling. Um, and so when that institute was founded, Archarchimengus um, 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 came with um, basically the money to buy an industrial robot. Um, and so he was the first in in the the faculty of architecture to to have the ability to use some of those machines that we now all know. Um, so well, um, and experiment with that. And so i i became I became a student assistant basically, and um, helped set up the lab and and learn how to use the robot and um, experiment mostly with milling processes. So we kind of naturally went towards wood using using you know wood design, timber construction, different techniques, trying out what the robot can do, what kind of shapes the robot can mill that you otherwise wouldn't be able to use. Um, and and so we did a couple of courses in, you know, timber joints, like parametric timber joints. Um, it's almost old school now, but um, it was extremely interesting back then. And we, we built a repertoire of sort of processes, manufacturing processes that we were able to then use uh, in, a, in a context of building maybe a small installation or a structure or a, a, p- a pavilion, basically. Um so back then, I was I was really just an architecture student that took courses at the institute. But later on, it, um, the ICD, together with the Partnering Institute, um, made their own master program. And so when you're a student now, um, it's called the ITEC uh, master program. When you student now, there's a very rigorous uh, two-year program where you go through learning about computational design theory. Um, you learn programming. You learn... Programming robotics, you learn building your own little robots, you know, with Arduinos and so on. Kind of along the side of other, um, you know, MIT um, or Harvard, where you have these courses um, where you you know you you learn to build things that build things in a way, and um, mm-hmm. you learn that interact uh, integration, I would say, between um, hardware and software and like you know what you what you need to develop from a hardware point of view in order to make some things um, that, that, you know, you can then design with. Um, so a pretty versatile education in terms of rethinking manufacturing processes uh, and integrating that with um, parametric design processes. And sometimes it's with wood, sometimes it's with other materials. Um, the Institute is known very well for fiber structures, carbon fiber mm-hmm. weaving or glass fiber weaving um, there are a couple of um, projects that came out of that and um, of course with wood because it's such a such a friendly material it's so easy to use and um, it has so many interesting characteristics you know bending um, moisture and 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 things that oftentimes you know that kind of the principle is that there's a characteristic that was previously suppressed in an industrialized uh, manufacturing or construction method and now we can, We can actually use that and employ that. Um, So it kind of rewires your brain. I I came into it as an architecture student thinking I would be the next, you know, fancy architect. And um, everything was sort of form motivated. And and I learned that having a bit of a more scientific mind when you don't have necessarily a um, end goal in mind, you're more curious. You're trying to figure out things sort of bottom up instead of top down. um, Then... Um, you could um, figure out some really interesting um, methods, you know, different ways to build things in a smarter way, in a more performative way. You know, save more material, um, have a more customizable or variable design. You know, that can accommodate certain, um, like more more variable. Uh, design intents basically right that's what parametrics is to me is that mm-hmm. the adaptability yeah
0: i it, can you give an example of of what like a something that actually reveals visually to me like what a bottom up instead of a top down approach is so it sounds like mm. you're you're not being dictated by process that is already established it sounds like you're developing material and Code and all of these things to create a new process is that is that on track or is it or is it something different than that?
1: No, that's true. I think in for in, in most cases um, the process is both um, um, a process how it should be in the real world, but also a, sort of an exercise for for your 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 own sort of rewiring mm. when you come from a design driven um, field, and mm-hmm. and that is that sort of, yes, you have to think bottom up. And that means be curious about the piece of technology that you are working on, um, that, you, that you're interested in. And don't think in the beginning necessarily how it will look like in the end. Mm-hmm. Just think about what that piece of technology can do, right? What what does the brick want? Um, think about the brick first before you mm-hmm. think about the, the wall. Um, and so I think a really good example is actually one of the projects that I worked on very early on, which was... Um, the um, finger jointed plate structure pavilion. So mm-hmm. we we developed, um, and that's actually exactly how it happened. Um, that the 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 final result is a very intricately designed um, ten meter thirty foot long pavilion that is made out of seven hundred fifty plates plywood plates that are all finger jointed together in various angles and and configurations, and it looks really really um, detailed. But but that shape. And that design and and, and how they all came together wasn't the original idea. The original idea was, Hey, we have a robot that has six axes, six degrees of freedom and a turntable that's attached to it. So that's seven axes. And we can mill finger joints using that robot into the edges of plywood plates. And we can mill any angle Mm -hmm. and we can connect any material thicknesses Mm -hmm. together. So, let's see what we can do with that. So we first developed that um, process of a robot basically milling around a polygon and adding all these finger joints in at different angles. And then we thought about, okay, so if we can connect any plate at in any angle, what kind of structure do we want to build? What kind of structure makes sense to build? And then we, we actually went a step further and we looked into biomimetics, we looked into biology, we looked into biological examples of plate structures and found the sea urchin and the sand dollar, which are plate structures that are made out of separate skeleton pieces that are kind of stuck together with mm. finger joints, actually. Mm. It's very interesting. interesting. And, and they have certain, a certain logic, right? And, and that, that logic, that we, we used that, we translated that basically back into a, a structure and um, decided, you know, there are certain rules how these plates have to come together. And so then that led to a what we call a building system or a material system, sort of the logic of how parts come together and form a larger structure. And that then was programmed into a parametric design workflow. And then we used that parametric tool basically as a design tool. And we explored from a design perspective what we could build. And because that tool was... De- Programmed to follow the rules of the building system and the manufacturing constraints, you would never be able to go outside of what is actually buildable, right? So everything you design would be immediately buildable. And so we explored what could be built, what could be designed, and we decided on a certain shape. You know, it usually becomes a very organic bubble shape um, because that's that's kind of lends itself uh, very easily to that or those shapes. And we tried different different variations, and that's how we ended up point on, um, with those, um, kinds of pavilions that, that you can see.
0: I, I remember vividly the era of pavilions, right? Like <laughs> there mm-hmm. was a, like, you're talking about the, 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 carbon fiber pavilions, the, the, the winding and the, I've even seen it examples done with, with drones where they're, they're carrying the, the lines and weaving them back and forth and going around an apparatus and yeah. And it dries over time, it cures over time. And it, it's, uh. Yeah. That was I mean I remember when at Autodesk University, like there were so many talks about pavilions and, and different construction methodologies and techniques that were either robotic or some you know some autonomous kind of a of a system to
1: build it really yeah, yeah it yeah. That was could, an
0: era for sure uh,
1: the 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 era of the pavilion and the pavilion itself as a typology for design research is is definitely i mean. It's still valid, um, Mm -hmm. and it it was just the right size, right? The right size and the right use. Um, It it needed a structural engineer to sign off on it because it's a roof over your head, so it, Mm -hmm. it was serious enough, you know? But it wasn't a full building. It didn't have much right. of a uh, insulation layer or cladding or anything. So they would usually be temporary. After three or six months, we would demolish them afterwards. But yeah. that, wasn't, that wasn't the use. Right? The use was to test a manufacturing process and a computational design process and to show what that together can, can accomplish. And usually they were extremely material efficient. They were super thin. You know, They, they had um, a certain level of, of performance that we were you know, able to, to test out on a larger scale.
0: Yeah it, and also just that that final step of constructability right because there's always kind of mm-hmm. this this question when in school like is it buildable is it constructable and to actually put that to the test and put real money into it right it go at some point it gets out of the computer or off paper or however you want to think of it and it becomes a real mm-hmm. thing as a student i bet that that had to be really satisfying to see those things get built
1: Absolutely, yeah. I think, um, and and also very scary, right? You're you're making a a schedule, a construction plan, and you're you're scheduling. You have to mill forty plates per day on the robot, and you know you really make shifts in a way. And things go wrong, of course, right? That's always part of it. I think the. Um, the success of um, that institute in particular and many of my colleagues that worked on these projects was because we were somehow able to navigate the risks, right? And we knew that uh, let's not push it too far, but we'll push so that we can make something that's really exciting. And right. um, for for every student involved, um, it was really always a great experience.
0: How far, I mean, I, I just have a sense and I've heard from other people who, especially kind of in the mass timber arena, talking about... Switzerland being really far ahead as far as um direct to, man- to f- fabrication you know the DFMA process and and just all of the the CNC milling and can you give an idea of and I'm I'm talking maybe from the US point of view and I'm not sure what how where Canada sits in this but what how far ahead how far behind I mean can you give a lay out kind of the spectrum of what you see because you said something earlier when you were talking about starting there in, and, in and 2008 or 2012, you, you threw out a date and you said, you know, like the, the back in the day and like, it seems mm-hmm. like, but that was, that was a decade ago. Right. And, and mm-hmm. so I know that things have progressed since then. And I have a sense that we are decades behind in the U S of where things are when it comes to DFMA in, in those European countries.
1: It, yeah, not, not necessarily, you know, um, I think, when you look when you look at that kind of research that we were doing at the ICD in Stuttgart, um, th- yes, there are a couple of um, or a handful of other universities, or maybe even more nowadays, that are doing the same thing in Europe, uh, in in Switzerland and in the UK and in Spain. There are also some in in the US and in Canada. Um, you know, um, I would say um, you know, especially Michigan comes to mind and. Mm and um you know and there's also calgary um they have a robot lab you know there there are definitely many universities these days that that mm-hmm. have um in the architecture department that's really important right I they have robots and and other equipment in the architecture department that they are experimenting with um but but you're mentioning an interesting point which is dfma and sort of that advanced thinking um that relates um, more industrialized construction, and, and and you know what kind of equipment is out there, and what can be used to design buildings, or mm-hmm. uh, you know what 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 impacts the design of buildings. Right. And I I would argue that um, even though those research institutes um, that that are out there are really advanced, um, they are sometimes almost too advanced to sure. make a significant impact on the industry. Yeah. Um, I think the students coming out of that, they have a really extremely versatile set of skills and they could go, you know, they can go to Adidas or Nike and 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 help them develop their parametric weaving methods and stuff like that. Um, and they can go into bigger architecture firms and, and you know, help them build, build tool sets. Um, but I think there is definitely a bit of a um, disconnect to... Um, how these technologies can actually be applied in the in the industry and what kind of impact they can ultimately have in an environment you know where industrialized construction or industrialization is uh, quite far away still
0: yeah i mean you made a comment before we hit record about the the various the two bubbles of academia and industry and how those bubbles don't talk to each other right and and so i mean to illustrate that point what you just said makes sense right it's like you you get to a point in in, at a really avant-garde institution that is you know an academic that that is pushing the the limits of what robotics and computational design and real world materials and construction can are capable of and then you graduate and go where like i know that there's some places i mean intelligent city is is probably an example right but there aren't that many and and when you get into a when you actually graduate and become an emerging professional into a profession that's done things the way they've always done things right and there isn't a huge incentive to invest in completely new ways of working because the machine the, the business machine already works the way that it works and it's known right um that it's hard to can, to evolve that to a level that would match what academia can produce. So maybe talk a little bit about kind of even your journey there. So you, you found a company that, that you found the need for that kind of thinking to be applied. I assume I want you to tell that story a little bit deeper, but versus kind of the, the total landscape that's out there. I mean, it's a pretty small piece of it, I assume.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, problem actually you know it's a it's a it's a curse and a blessing that academia or especially architectural design research is quite far removed from the industry
0: Hmm.
1: um and i'm saying this because um yes you you graduate from you know princeton michigan um stuttgart zurich um, a.a london um And then what, right? Like, where where do you go? You go to an architecture firm where you have, you know, five people working on programming some grasshopper tools that no one wants to use in your company. Um, Or you, you know, again, you go to some kind of design company that does some really advanced stuff. Um, But where do you get to use robots to actually build buildings? There are not that many out there. Um, But so it's a a curse because, you know, I really, I also got to admit when I was, fully uh, in involved in academia, I also kind of sort of look down on industry because yeah, they're not using the tools that we're developing right they're not doing that stuff um and in, in some ways it's 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 the same way as well from industry right uh, no one from big architecture firms knew about those pavilions right because right. like yeah, just building pavilions right? well that has no effect on on the on the larger industry right
0: why are you training people to run robots? We don't use robots right. <laughs>
1: Exactly, yeah. Yeah,
0: big disconnect.
1: Um, Yeah, yeah, it's a big disconnect. But that's what I'm saying. It's also a blessing because it allowed us to dive really deep and to it allowed us to own a robot, right? And like, you know, I, I had a key. I could go and use the robot whenever I wanted to. And that level of integration doesn't exist anywhere else. And that level of integration and also the fact that the robot itself is a new tool to all involved in the industry, right? It's a new tool to, man, to, to to construction companies, to engineers and to architects. And because it's so new and sort of untainted, um, everyone approaches it with a sort of a, a clean slate, you know, like mm. open mind, like what can it do? And so it really allowed us to to approach it sort of in a very naive way. And then also to really integrate it into a design process, into a level that I think most people still haven't understood. Um, and, and I think that was a very important lesson and sort of, you know, got, you know, I kind of immersed myself in in that environment for a very long time. And so when I came out and then when I talked to, um, Oliver Lang and Cindy Wilson, um, the co-founders of Intelligent City, um, they didn't talk necessarily about, oh, we need robots to, Mm -hmm. to make our buildings. They talked about, we want to find a scalable technology to deliver mass timber urban housing in a consistent yet customizable way mm-hmm. right and when i heard that i thought well look at that you that means you need a parametric design workflow you need parametric tools to control what you can design and to control that customizability and you need you need some kind of manufacturing flexibility To produce all these various um, or varied building components, right? Um, And so that's suddenly when it also to myself kind of made sense um, that what I learned actually can be applied in the industry. And so I think it was good that I was detached, that we were detached for such a long time from sort of the typical problems and the fragmentation that you see in the industry, because it wouldn't have allowed. But it it wouldn't have offered such a such an environment um to come up with these ideas. Well,
0: would you have to say the same thing for the co-founders of Intelligent City, where they didn't all they also didn't have kind of a, a tie to delivering projects in the way that everybody delivers projects either. They mm-hmm. recognized that they needed a different way to do that and and somehow your paths crossed, right, in order to yeah. facilitate and make this eventually happen but uh i would say you know e- equal equal kudos to them for having uh an open mind about like they i i don't know what they didn't know but they they knew that the way that it has always been done was not the way that they were, wanted to do it even if they didn't know what the way they wanted to do it was yet i think that's really interesting to think of them and you mm-hmm. coming together at this particular point in time
1: yes Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was extreme luck and the time was ripe as well. I think parametric design and robotic manufacturing had matured to a degree that it could actually be applied in seriousness to a larger part of the industry and not just for, I'm going to call it fringe projects. Of course, there are fantastic projects out there that have been parametrically designed and I love them, but they were always these very special one-off lighthouse projects. And I think Uh, D- Daniel Davis uh, r- wrote about it, right? Like the, the actually interesting part is the boring part, right? It's like the, the big, the big chunk in the middle um, where all the, the housing middle. and all the, right. yeah, the fat middle, where yeah. all the housing and the office types are happening. Right. Um, and, and you're totally right. The, uh, they, um, they knew a lot, actually they, um, they were both architects and they worked in, and uh, they had a little architecture firm and they experimented with housing typologies, um, especially for, um, Oliver Lang is uh, German as well, as it, as it happens, and um, you know, and, and they 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 met in Europe, and they um, they traveled the world a little bit, and sort of saw quite a few different building typologies, um, and and so they came to to Canada basically with a bit of an ambition to to change a little bit um, the this like big difference between single family housing and skyscrapers uh, towers, right, and and so. The, the sort of the, that what's called the missing middle now, um, they they experimented with that um, already in the early 2000s. And um, with every building that they built, they kind of realized, okay, the construction of it was terrible. Um, you know, it was very difficult to, to even have new design ideas because the construction companies were so used to the typical mm-hmm. way things are built. Mm-hmm. And so um, already in, in 2009 or so, they um, actually got, that's kind of when Intelligent City was founded sort of officially because that, then they actually got a shop and they built um, stick frame modules them, themselves um, to build one of their buildings. And then they did that a few more times and then they realized, okay, we have to change also the way these things are built because just manual assembly in a in a shop isn't going to cut it. But the idea basically came from an understanding of what good design, good livability is, what, what urban housing should should deliver, the idea of urban housing. And how can we, now that we have found good design ideas, how can we replicate that and and bring it to you know a, a larger scale and, and and deliver it in Vancouver, and Toronto, and in New York and California? Like how, how can we scale that up? And and so then the idea of okay, we need some kind of system, right, that that can accommodate that. That's when sort of the technology came in. So it's, it's design motivated, and I also think personally that's extremely important because I don't think that prefab companies will save us. I think it is it is architects, um, it is those that understand design and functionality as much as the technology that 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 is behind it.
0: It's interesting, like the 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 thing that really stood out to me when you were going through all that and then where you just ended talking about design it it, the older I get, the more I recognize that the experience of experiencing buildings good and Mm -hmm. bad and everywhere in between how important that is to being a successful architect, right? It's, it's not like you don't just come out of school. And because you're an idea generating machine come up with good architecture necessarily, and just because you've been practicing for a long time doing maybe a certain project typology doesn't mean those are great buildings, right? It's, it really is kind of this perfect scenario of, and, and, or imperfect, I don't know, but it, it's, it's through that experience of curiosity, paying attention, really being observant. What makes it good? Why does it feel good? How does it make me feel good? and And it really trying to kind of quantify and qualify those statements and those feelings over time to where you can get to the the point where you actually can say this is the value of design and this is the value of architecture because just how it looks is not where that ends, right? I think a lot of people just look at that and they they say, "Okay, well, it looks like a great project, therefore it is a great project, but I think this is what if you go all the way back to like alexander and pattern language and it's like how do things feel why do they work the way why when nobody was paying attention and it worked out to to feel like this why did that feel good why why did it matter it's such an interesting intrinsic part of architecture so it's really interesting that you say like the founders and and starting this company intelligent city understood the value of design and that design was going to make a difference even though they were hitting other walls along the way of constructability and the way parts went together and the way those details were probably flashed and like all of those kinds of things that were just kind of really practical things along the way understanding that this is a really complicated puzzle right there's a lot of pieces to it and some of it is not easily quantified either so mm-hmm. it's just very interesting to kind of think through the the larger kind of architectural aspects of this conversation as well
1: uh- I totally agree, and I think it's um, without it, I think um, we would not be able to to change our industry. And mm. you know, I, I also don't want to put architects on a pedestal. I think um, what you're saying is extremely important, right? It's the it's the flashing, it's it's the details of how things come together, and there mm. is there are so many layers that have to come together, and and we need a lot of expertise and experience in that as well, right? We are extremely dependent on on our Building envelope engineers and on manufacturing experience as well. That there's so many the things wisdom, that can yeah. go go wrong. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, you know, a, um, a car or a laptop or a phone is successful not because of the way it's made. It's successful because the way it looks and feels and functions. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's designed, and and I think that's really important. And and that's why we are calling ourselves a product company because the idea that is that if if a building becomes a product like any other product that we are buying and the you know the decision process you go through when you buy that product you know what's its value what's its performance and so on but one thing that's most important is that it is already pre-engineered it is already thought through when you yeah. buy it right you're not buying a phone and then People are starting to design it, um, so it has to be pre-engineered. It has to be figured out up front so that you can actually go and buy it as a product. But that means, of course, you have to put in an incredible amount of work to to figure it all out up front. Right. So right. if you if you do that once for one building, and then and then you sell the building, uh, that doesn't really make sense, right? So it only makes sense if you can sell multiple buildings. But then now you're stuck with selling the exact same building over and over again. And, and that doesn't make sense either. You can't rubber stamp these buildings across the continent. Um, so you need the design flexibility, right? You need customization, mass customization in, in a way. So you you, you need the technology ultimately to arrive at a scalable business model. And that's really the truth. At the end of the day, is um, you, you need a business model that makes sense. And in construction, that's pretty difficult because the cycles are so long and so, so mm-hmm. slow and, and innovation is so difficult. So you need to find a way that every hour you spend in R&D can be uh, uh, multiplied afterwards when you apply it to different buildings and the buildings that look different and that are different typologically and topologically. Um, but what you develop is versatile and customizable enough that it can be applied to all of these buildings. So um, that's what we what we call a parametric platform. A parametric building platform or parametric technology platform is... Um, it's platform based design as you might know it from other industries, but it is all thought in a parametric way.
0: This is a fascinating idea as you're talking through that. I, because I I've, I've been a part of many architectural projects, but nothing like what you're talking about, where it's a, where it's a product. Um, it's, it's always a distinct solution for a distinct client for a distinct site. And, uh, I might not have even worked on the same type of project two times in a row, right? So Mm -hmm. um, not product-based at all. Uh, And so the the thing that fascinates me about what what you're talking about, this flexibility of the tools to provide different outcomes, but still make the process make sense as a business model is interesting because you have to do so much preloaded thinking in this. And I'm just wondering, before we get into... What the platform is, what it does, kind of what intelligent city means, what what the business mm-hmm. is is all about. Can you just talk about kind of the the depth or the to 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 what degree do you have to figure out the possible in the tool set that you're creating upfront for? And I'm sure it evolves over time still, but but it yeah. seems to me like you have to go quite a bit farther earlier in creating a, a platform like this, a tool set like this?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good question because it is on, it's ongoing, right? It's As we are working on projects, we are discovering sort of new variations sure. that we might not have thought about before. But, um, and, and that's fine. That's, the idea is you're developing a technology that will have a certain version and once you finish that version, and then then you use it, um, you you apply it into different projects, right? Um, as you do that, you discover that you can change things and you can update things, and so you start developing the next version um, while you're applying the previous version. So it's it's a bit of a sort of an agile development process, as you might know it in in software development, mm. um, where you have uh, multiple teams working on the same product from different perspectives. Um, So you think about the product, in this case, as the whole building, or you can divide it up into different building components like the the envelope, the the superstructure, mechanical, electrical, plumbing systems, and so on. And so they have certain design requirements um, that come sort of from our product definition and from the business um, definition. And so multiple groups are working um, on that definition from an engineering point of view, detailing, um, from a manufacturing point of view, and from a software development point of view, about sort of what, what are the rules behind um, those particular details and how can we program them into our parametric design tools. And that's basically when things become really interesting because everyone working on these details and the building systems and, and how things come together. Has to work on them from a perspective of not what is the single solution, but from the perspective of what is the minimum and what is the maximum solution and what is the range in between. So every building part is not defined by a single set of dimensions or characteristics, but by a range of characteristics. And and that if you if you add it all up, right, every building part has a certain range. Every every screw, every piece of CLT, mass timber or or plywood. Um, has a certain range of um, what's its minimum, what's its maximum size, put it all together, that's your design space. That's that's your solution space. That's in which you can design. Um, So in some ways, that sort of computational design thinking or parametric thinking is sort of ingrained. Um, But of course, it's extremely difficult to keep that awareness up because the more complicated a problem is, the more inclined you are to find a single solution because otherwise you might not find a solution at all, right? Mm. So you you end up, of course, with many details that are sort of singular and they can be applied to a wide range of buildings, but they might still be its own single solution. And then you have areas where you have more flexibility and you know you have a range of solutions. And so that mm. it's, a, it's a combination a little bit, but that thinking is very important. And then the thinking of versioning, as I said, that you kind of let's, let's figure out you know, the following set of building components because we know we have, you know, a handful of projects that are a certain typology at the moment and, and we'll figure it out for those and then we'll figure out an updated version later on as as we go along. So there's then, of course, also the constant feedback between um, the projects and, and the platform.
0: I, I want to ask a real, maybe nerdy question do you do you got how do you do that with tools do you have like github i mean is it is it forking and versioning and is it is it like that like it just seems like this never-ending process the tools are never done but there's just kind of like the latest version kind of thing happening i'm sure at Mm. some point a project is locked into a certain tool set but it just seems like in as as a alternative to traditional practice right where it's like we use Revit and we're going to use the version 2022 of Revit for this project or, or whatever. Like this seems seems a lot more like there's a lot of overhead that you have to manage when it comes to software and versioning, and especially as it translates into fabrication and robotics and all those things.
1: Yeah. Um, documentation is key. Um, I think um, you had a podcast about that as well at some point, um, how important it is to not lose information along the way right mm-hmm. and to document it in a, in, a, in a proper way so yeah, yeah. we're using github in the, in the software team we are using um confluence and jira and um, for all the for all teams so we are collecting and documenting our r&d process and we are using project management tools um, both in a waterfall way and in an agile way um, to kind of keep track of all the things that are currently happening and to keep track of also sort of when we want to get to a certain version. Um, So um, building systems, manufacturing, software, all these teams have their own versions that they're working on and and sort of together that forms then a a sort of larger version of our um, platform.
0: And there's all these teams. Are they actually collaborating throughout the entire process? It seems like they would have to, whereas mm-hmm. instead of like a a very particular like handoff process, doesn't seem like that would work very well in this
1: kind of a scenario when you have all of this going on at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, exactly. You're right. I mean, we are still at a size, um, I would say, where many people have multiple roles. And, and so there is a lot of natural overlap. Um, but as we grow, we have to sort of systemize and institutionalize um those um, this level of integration a little bit more. Um, so yeah, we have we have mechanical engineers, ro- roboticists, um, computational designers, software engineers, architects, um, structural engineers. Um, but I mean, we all we all understand this also, you know it's just it's it's a great company to work in. I want to say, um, we all understand what we are working on. We all understand that we need to integrate and we need to talk to um, people from other teams to understand what their requirements are and, and, and how we can combine that um, so it's a i mean i'm also going to say it's a challenging process of course right no one's done this um, in, in that way and it's it's easy to shut yourself out of that process it's easy to sort of focus on your deliverables and just do that and then forget about manufacturing you know for a couple of weeks um, but um, it's so it's I think naturally the development process would fragment. It's quite an interesting experiment, actually. Mm, um, sure. So we kind of have to actively work against that um, all the time. But I think I think so far, um, you know, I can only say that I think we have been doing a, a great job because I think it's a very challenging process to do that.
0: Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors. You've heard about Avail here on the Troxel Podcast, and I'm excited to tell you they have a new message for you, my friends. Avail is designed by designers for design professionals, so it's no wonder Avail focuses on visuals in its platform. While Avail has always provided high-resolution previews, there are some new visual enhancements you should know about. These are channel cards and key cards. They're visual gateways to your content, and they're both customizable. Channel cards have been available since Avail Desktop 4.0. Think of them like album covers for each content channel you create. Channel cards are designed to make navigating your firm's assets quick and easy. And with channel cards, the look and feel of Avail conforms with your firm's standards. Next up is key cards, and these are the latest addition to Avail and are available since version 4.3. What are they? Key cards visually group content within a channel, and they derive data from your tags to make finding content easier. So they're created from the work you've already done. By adding custom graphics to your keycards, navigating content within a channel improves immediately. Keycards also drive the breadcrumb trail in the latest Avail Desktop 4.3 release. Navigate through your channels using breadcrumbs. And a new breadcrumb control is displayed on a channel when navigating with keycards. Breadcrumb items allow the user to navigate to the previous state easily. To see all of these new visual enhancements in action, Head over to getavail.com to learn more. That's get getavail, to learn more. And now let's get back to our conversation. The alignment of incentive is what I think is different maybe about a, a company like Intelligent City and and a lot of other architectural practices where different people have different incentives in the same office in a traditional architectural setting. It's like business Mm -hmm. development people are incentivized by signing contracts. Project managers are about schedule uh, and hours worked on a project. Designers are maybe incentivized by awards, um, for example. And a lot of times these things are in competition with each other. And it's, it creates silos and it creates kind of, you know, not everybody going in the same direction. It doesn't sound like that at all at Intelligent City. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the, like you said, we all understand kind of the outcome that we're after and we all have to achieve it together. It just seems like a very different structure for the way that teams work and work together.
1: Yeah, I think it is. Um, and we we are moving away from the project thinking, right? I mean, we execute on projects, mm. right? So you have project teams, right? You have a arch- project architect, intern architects, mm-hmm. and and a project manager, and so on. Um, so there is, and then of course you have you have the industry, which is like like a tsunami wave that washes over you, and then suddenly, by the time you 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 you, you come up for air, you are back in the project, coming. yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, like uh, this it forces it forces you. Um, to go back to our project thinking. Yeah. Um, but the way, w- what we're saying is um, because we are not a project company, we're a product company. And so the product results in projects, right? Each project is an outcome of the product, iteration of the product. It's using a certain version of the product. And and every time we engage in a in a project, we, we take um, the knowledge of the product and apply it. And then we learn from it and we put mm-hmm. it back into the product, right? So, that is fundamentally a very different kind of thinking. It almost I think seems,
0: that- seems to me like a process company. Mm-hmm. Like it, It's like you're constantly evolving and, and iterating on the process, and products are the outcome of that. I, I totally understand what you're saying, but it just really sounds like you're all focused so much on the process of delivering the product, even more mm-hmm. so maybe than the product itself, even though that's where the real value lies.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, and everyone understands that. You know, manufacturing, uh, software—they all understand that we need to deliver on the product so that we can convince real estate developers to use it, right? right. And that's the success, like the case you can study, be re- right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, they have. You to can see be ready it. with, with you, you. Yeah, you can have manufacturing. You know, all waiting, but. Right. Right. Uh, if if there's if there's no project to, to, to deliver, then then that that doesn't make sense. So, I think that's yeah, that's that's a good observation.
0: And so, from your standpoint, I, I do want to talk about Intelligent City and like the actual product. But I, one more thing here, <laughs> I promise. I it just seems like uh, this focus on a certain project type or a product type, I should say, really mm-hmm. enables what you're talking about to happen whereas a lot of firms might be participating in different market segments like they're doing civic work and healthcare work and education work and everybody's doing it differently the uh the ahjs all need a different set of uh you know things to be all the hoops to be jumped through at certain times and it, there's there's like no way to drive consistency in a practice that does different project types. So is that is that really kind of what yeah. is gluing all this together? It's just that focus on the, the one product type?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And you know, that's a very interesting question because I think architecture or the, the AEC industry has just absolutely no comparison to what a systemized industry could look like right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um if you're an architecture firm oftentimes you do anything right? right any kind of project it doesn't matter all the tools that we have can do anything right right Right. all the bim tools and, everything, and, and all, all the software and, and, and all these processes are made to accommodate any typology of building and it's like i i, I it's so hard to compare right i mean i, I really like trying to compare our industry to other industries, right? Like can us compare ourselves with the car industry and you know, it doesn't always work. Like what is, what is a good example? I always think that it's basically like everyone is just a custom motorbike company and you can just go anywhere and get a custom motorbike. And now suddenly there's a company like Ducati and they come in and they say, Hey, we have these 12 different motorbikes you can choose from. And they are, you know, really well designed and built and they're a lot cheaper um, and then everyone comes and it's like, oh, but I would like to change the exhaust pipe in, in, into this location, right? Can I change your wheelbase? And then you have to say, no, um, we are focused only on these certain products. And it's such a wild idea from the perspective of the AEC industry to do that. But it's extremely important to, to stick to your product definition. Otherwise you get distracted with all mm-hmm. sorts of ideas and changes and you know, it's also sort of always sort of the the death of parametric design is not understanding what it can actually deliver, and always either underestimating what it can deliver or overestimating what it can deliver. When you think, "Oh, if it's parametric, can we not design anything?" Right. And you also have to say, "No, there's only a very specific solution space that you can deliver." And if you leave that solution space, you slow yourself down. You you, you grind to a halt because now you're back in the manual process, right? Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. All right, well, it's time to get onto Intelligence City, what the product is. I I'm I'm really interested in even why I mean, you I know you guys are based in in Vancouver, correct? Uh mm-hmm. and so why why Canada? I mean, you 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 talked about coming from Germany and I'm just in wonder if there's something special going on there. I I know like Pacific Northwest there's a huge emphasis on mass timber for sure, so so maybe that's a part of it, but just give give us kind of a rundown now of the, what the product is, why it's that product. I mean, you alluded to it mm-hmm. in kind of the formation story of Intelligent City, but what what is the problem and why did you guys choose to bite that problem off and, and make that your, your problem that you're solving for?
1: Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. Um, you're right that um, the Pacific Northwest is very receptive to our idea of... Um, housing um, density uh, densifying our cities, building more instead of the missing metal um, and it is very receptive to ideas of sustainability building, car- finding ways to build in a, a carbon neutral manner, um, both operationally and embodied um, it is receptive to ideas of housing typologies I would say, it's a mild enough climate to look at some some variations, um, for example, Dalton City really likes um, the idea of courtyard buildings because they allow you to have double sided apartments, and so you can really make very efficient apartments that you know have cross ventilation and double sided exposure, um, so they are much more livable as well. Um, and so, Vancouver uh, specifically, I think is you know very much incentivizing. Um, building prefab, building with mass timber, building sustainably, building high performance buildings, sort of passive house certified or close to that. So it makes a lot of sense. And of course, the whole idea of mass timber and prefab also makes a lot of sense um, in that context because um, Canada has a lot of forests and Canada wants to use its forests in a sustainable manner. Um, so It wants to designate certain areas for sustainable horticulture that can really um, produce um, value-add products. So not just exporting the tree trunks, but actually making use of them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very logical that it started in Vancouver. Um, But the markets and the demand for housing are also... A lot bigger in Ontario and in the, in, in the on the east coast in general. Mm-hmm. So, so I think maybe maybe Vancouver makes sense to to start that company, um, but then there is such a big need for housing on the east coast as well that it also makes sense that it's being applied there as well. And I think that the last point um, to your question is also why did I come from Germany to uh, to work uh, here in the Pacific Northwest? And I think. Um, Honestly, in the beginning, I, I wasn't sure about that. But now after I've worked in this field for, for almost five years and also coming back every now and then to Europe um, and seeing prefab companies in Switzerland, Austria and in Europe and how sophisticated they are um, and how many there are, I think the North American market is, especially when it comes to mass timber and prefab, is probably 10, 15 years behind um, that of, of the European market. And at the same time, it's not as dense as the European market. So I think the potential for disruption and innovation is just a lot bigger and also the ability to do it and not to get immediately crushed by you know a dozen other companies that are competing with you.
0: That's an interesting um, point. I, I hadn't thought yeah. of it that way, but it isn't because we're lagging behind. There's still time <laughs> to, to make a mark here. That, yeah. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so that, that's go ahead,
1: continue. Um, yeah. Uh yeah, so so that's um a very sort of um yeah a, a market that is ripe for innovation. And mm-hmm. I and I think mm-hmm. that the mid to high rise uh market is also particularly in North America very attractive. I think Europe is usually a little bit lower, so you're more on the low rise um mm-hmm. typology versus um above seven stories, you know, or above six stories starting at seven, you're in the high risk category. Uh, now you cannot build a, a stick frame, right? And and so um you need a different material. And so mass tempo also makes a lot, a lot of sense there. Mm, interesting.
0: All right. A I a lot of pieces are fitting together there. I, I think that makes sense. And there's even been code changes that have recently passed, I think even in California that have allowed um Mass timber to be used above, you know, up to was it fourteen stories or something like that? Twelve. Okay, yeah. Uh, so the the code changes have also started enabling these project types to happen in more regions than than less. So that that's that's pretty interesting too. Um, okay. So as far as is the the kinds of projects, could you could you define kind of where the parametricism the par the parametric part of your platform fits into? This design process because like you said you can't just plop down the same thing in vancouver that you want to do in ontario that you want to do in california that right it's every site's different environmental microclimates uh, climate zones uh, weather all these things are, are different and so it's not going to be the same thing everywhere so how does your parametric platform like where does where do parametric play a big role in, mm-hmm. in driving, is it, is it upfront early in the design process or is it, is it throughout?
1: Yeah. Um, it, the short answer is it's throughout. Um, and I think that's also a little bit of the, um, the, the secret, um, I would almost say, um, and I'm saying this because I, I feel that, um, the, the most important point that no one really understands is what parametric manufacturing actually means. Hmm. Um, because I think in any other industry, um, when you talk about mass customization, especially in the car industry, um, that sort of coined the term, I would say hijacked it. Um, when you talk about mass customization, you t- what they actually mean is, you know, you pick a color, you pick different seats, you pick different tires, but you can't change the, sh- the shape of your car. You can't make it longer or wider, right? Because my particular parking spot is a little bit thinner, so maybe I need a thinner car. Well, um, but, but that's okay, right? Because we agreed in general um, that that's the amount of variation that is okay, and we don't need more variation than that. Um, but in in construction, that's that's not enough. We need a higher level of customization. And so, when you manufacture a, a building, when you manufacture building components, um, is I think it's not enough that you can just select between like a dozen different. Types of building components or variations of building components, F- to a certain degree, um, for some building parts it makes sense, like windows. Maybe you 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 know you have to ha- handle your supply chain, so you order you know um, 100 windows type A, 100 windows type B, and so on. But when it comes to the overall assembly and the building shape and the grid of the building, the structure of the building, that's really dependent on the building site and, like you say, mm-hmm. that the jurisdiction and, and the climate and the client, of course, right? So the the, the, um, the, the adaptability comes sort of, or the, the parametrics of it comes into play when you put it all together and you force it sort of into a shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it doesn't matter if it's if, if the grid spacing is 12 foot three or 12 foot six or 13 feet or or just in general all over the place, right? Because maybe there are some apartments that have uh, need a larger living room and some that need a smaller one. Um, that should be all fine and there shouldn't be a step in in between certain grid spacing or certain um, sizes of um, en- envelope panels, for example, or facade panels, right? So the parametrics really sort of, again, it's this thinking um, that goes from design to manufacturing. And why I'm emphasizing manufacturing is because I think that's an extremely important point. You cannot design something parametrically if you cannot manufacture it parametrically. You, you cannot suddenly have to make um, 150 different shop drawings for your building components by hand, right? This has to be automated. You cannot suddenly make 150 uh, uh, sets of machine instructions for your robots or CNC machines by hand. It has to be automated. It has to come naturally from the design process. So that is the, the sort of end-to-end thinking. And, and so you have to integrate um how your design gets manufactured. You have to f- integrate that thinking that every every building part comes with a set of instructions, a set of characteristics or metadata or however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And um, that translates into machine code and shop drawings and, and, and all of that. But how that is generated, how that building part comes Life is is the other part, it's sort of the front end of the design tool, right? It's the, how do you actually design a building with with that system? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also really important that we develop a, a parametric design tool with which you can design our buildings in a very easy way, right? So then you raise questions of user interactivity or user experience, of course, as well, and and how much is automated, how much is manually defined. Um, so that you have sort of that maximum amount of uh, um, speed and customization at the same time. Um, and then you push a button and then it, it goes all the way through. It generates all the components, it generates all the manufacturing data. And so in essence, if a, if a client came to us in the morning and we designed a building with them, we could start manufacturing in the afternoon if, 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 it, if it was all, you know, all the materials were there and so on. Wow.
0: And so do you guys control the manufacturing as well? Are you actually doing the production and then are you doing the construction or is that, do you work with contractors kind of explain the rest of Like, how does it actually become a real building?
1: Yeah. Um, so we manufacture um, the um, the superstructure, the basically the floor cassettes and columns and all of that that makes the, the superstructure of the building and um, we manufactured the the facade panels or envelope panels so basically the the structure and the and the shell um, because those are the mass timber components and there isn't really a mass timber prefab company that you could outsource this to okay um, there, there might be and you know, in the future um, maybe there, there will be more prefab companies that accommodate such a systemized thinking and they could manufacture it for you so you could outsource it. But we also see this, it's, it's a very connected technology, right? We, the way we manufacture it, the way we use robotics, where we use it, um, and where it's more of a manual or a traditional process, it's it's really sort of very ingrained in, in our building systems. Um, so we handle those components, and then we uh, collaborate with an on-site general contractor who then takes care of foundations, underground, and also the interiors. And, okay. Um, some of the MEP systems as well.
0: So, the interiors, the systems are put in once the superstructure is erected. It's not like these are prefabricated modules in a factory somewhere where a lot of that's being done and then just delivered to the site pr- practically complete. It's still kind of a traditional building process, except that all these parts have been pre cut, numbered, and they're going to go together in a very
1: specific way once they reach the site. It, it, correct. So, we are not doing volumetric modular, we are doing panelized. Got it. Uh, construction. Okay. And, you know, there are advantages and disadvantages. Um, I think you recently had a podcast about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's volumetric modular has advantages in terms of the, the level of uh, finishes that you can produce, right? But you are also slowed down in the process and you need very, very big factories sure. um, to make these modules. And then everything is also sort of a module thinking, um, like, like a box thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas when you go... Well, what we are doing with um, um, floor cassettes or floor panels um, it's really just a, a big slab at the end of the day and and you have a lot more freedom for the interiors sure. nevertheless however the um, the um, combination of how your structure looks like and what kind of apartments go in and where all the services run is a very connected problem and so, we we design engineer all of that, but we don't prefab it ourselves. We we, we then hand it off to um, other companies.
0: And you're also doing the interior design as well as part of that, right? You're not yes. just designing the structure; you're doing the entire
1: design. Yeah, we're doing all the architectural services and all the all the design services, and we basically have a team of uh, consultants that we like to work with. Some of that stuff we are doing in in house as well. Um, some of the engineering, but um, with the current size of the company, we are really. It's um, a bit of a lesson as well, I think, from, from from other companies that failed, is that you have to have local collaboration. You, you can't have your whole engineering team just in Vancouver and then work in a, you know, in a different jurisdiction in 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 Toronto or in Atlanta. Um, you, you need to form local supply chains and local consultant groups that can work with you
0: that know the region as well. I would assume. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So, the, the, can you just define what the product itself is? Though so you've said some kind of general, categorical things, but can you get more specific? Is like, what, what is, what are the constraints that you're working within with these kinds of projects?
1: So basically, we deliver uh, mixed-use urban housing um, in the mid to high-rise range. So that's um, anywhere between four and eighteen stories. Um, ideally, I think the, the um, probably most important market is is around eight to twelve stories, and I'm saying mixed use because we our, our building systems can accommodate um, office and commercial spaces as well. So it, it can make a switch between those be, between commercial and residential, um, and oftentimes buildings in urban densification scenarios have that they have a base, right, a commercial base. So from the ground slab up, everything can be made with our mass timber components, and um, and then we basically have um, a certain, you know, the the um, the skeleton of the building and the and the envelope of the building um, is, is made from mass timber, and you know there are certain ranges of um, um, grid spacing that we can accommodate. But then you can basically um, put many different types of cladding, many different types of facade articulation, many different types of balcony systems. And you can put in many t- many different types of apartments, right? They are pre-figured out, pre-designed, pre-engineered. So mm-hmm. we know what kind of apartments fit with what grid and we know what kind of balcony systems can be attached to it. So you basically ultimately you have a configurator that doesn't really exist in full yet, but you kind of go from building shape um, to facade articulation, balconies, apartment types, interior choices like kitchens and, and bathrooms. You kind of go down the list in your configurator. And and then you can ad, adjust that in, in size depending on what fits onto your site.
0: And how long did it take Intelligent City to get from, I guess, when they talk to you, to this point is this five years or is it like this didn't all happen at once right you didn't start with all of these tools at your fingertips so what what does that development cycle kind of look like for somebody who would be interested in learning like the speed of development of just the technology to do this
1: Hmm. yeah it's hard to say because of course doing those five years we also learned a lot of things and um you know made some decisions and changed things as well Mm -hmm. um and it's a lot about setting up the uh, the infrastructure as well, um, the the software architecture, for example, on the software side. It's really important to understand, like, to to set up how a building is designed. Like, what is the you know the, the, the software structure of of a building, and and then once you have that, it's pretty easy to put to to add a couple more apartments or a, a different kitchen type, right? Sort of the parametric floor plan idea. Wow. Um, it's pretty easy to adjust afterwards. So I think it took us probably um, three or four years to um, figure that out. And, and um, on the manufacturing side, in a similar way, it took us probably two, three years to figure out what in a manufacturing process we um, want to automate first and and which parts we, we want to keep sort of in a more traditional assembly line, manual assembly line, and we want to want to automate later. Um, so, it's. I think it's also because of that combination that you have to think about building systems, manufacturing, and software all at the same time. Um, you you kind of um, need to make sure everything is being taken care of as you sort of progress in your understanding of what the product really is. And then on top of that, you make you have realizations um, what the product market fit is. Right, you have to understand what what developers are looking for, what kind of buildings make the most sense, or kind of apartments make the most sense. And then that influences also the the, 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 the development process of the technology
0: I'm just shaking my head because it's pretty incredible um, to to uh, to really think about the speed at which this has happened, because like that's a, a normal architectural project this three to four years, mm-hmm. one project, right? And for you to develop this technology during a time span similar to a project in architecture mm-hmm. that allows you to to deliver a multitude of projects right is is totally fascinating to me, and it kind of makes me think about the idea of the way that the company is set up as a technology first company not that mm-hmm. it's not like you had all this technology sitting around and you were and then you figured out how to apply it to solve this problem. Obviously, these two things went together, and it's this <clears> back and forth one informing the other the entire way through but But the company is built on technology, whereas uh, traditional practices are built on. Traditional practices and, and the traditional way, the traditional business model, waiting for a client to knock on the door, going through the programmatic process, going through entitlements, going you know going all the way through to delivery, and and really just applying generic technology to that process to hopefully solve the problems while acquiring technical debt along the way, right? Because when when using generic technology, like every firm out there is. Getting into deeper and deeper technical debt every time. And I, I can only assume that that's like, it's not allowed in your company. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it happens sometimes, but for the, like, you're avoiding that at all costs, right? Because it matters so much to the process to never get into technical debt along the way. Like, you can't fake something. That's going to hurt you Mm -hmm. later because your product depends on it. And because your process depends on it, where in a traditional firm, it's like you said, you said it, the tsunami is here. The tsunami will go away and we'll have a whole new tsunami to deal with later. And who cares if we don't remember to fix that one little thing for the next project, we'll just fix it again then, because that that's just how projects are forecast. And that's how that they are. That's how we apply labor to them, and it's, there's so much inefficiency built into those that I think it's just assumed that those, that technical debt's going to occur and that we're okay with it. I can only imagine like that's absolutely n- n- not even on the table at, at where you work.
1: Well, I think um you just gave me the idea that we should put a really big banner into our office so that says no technical debt.
0: How many days since the last technical? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The lay, the last technical debt incident. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, I it, mean that that it do you have anything kind of just to just to kind of talk about the point about being built on as a technology first company versus you know I, and I'm the the reason I bring this up is not to like shame anybody for saying like this this is the way it should be versus but but like let's be honest it's going to be very difficult for a, a company that's been around for decades if not longer to pivot to a different model like this because it yeah. is so hard to not to to just totally change gears right and and move away from a proven business model proven in the way that it's always been and maybe not the way it's going to be in the future but just like it, it kind of works now versus this this thing that is entirely different
1: yeah I, it, it all goes back to uh, systemization right it's it's this idea and I think you had a conversation with Paul Winter where you talked about that that mm-hmm. you kind of go for, you rush from project to project right and right. every time the project ends you just sort of clean slate let's not think about it
0: sweep it um, under the rug
1: right yeah, n- right. never open these models again. Uh, and then and then you start from, from scratch and you make the same mistakes again. I would argue that any architecture firm, even in a traditional model of, of, of um, delivering architecture, could, could do so much better if they systemized their own processes. And they, if they figured out what is the underlying logic, the underlying rules or the rule sets of the way we design buildings, the, the particular buildings that we like, um, you know, and and the processes that go with it, and, and let, let's let's try to to write it down, systemize it, um, all agree on the same process, which is always the first step. Right? before automation comes systemization, right? You first understand your process, and then you can automate it. Um, so that would help anyone. But for some reason, our whole industry is built around that extremely custom, extremely fragmented process, and that. Also makes it very difficult to innovate from within, right? It makes it very difficult for any company to change their processes because they would have to change their organizational structure and thinking, and they would have to change the inter-organizational um, structure and thinking as well. Right. I, I I read a, a whole bunch about that um, because I was so interested in how fragmented our industry is and how difficult it is to innovate in a fragmented industry because you're so dependent on the the connections to other. Um, entities over which you don't have control right so that's where um, um, systemic innovation comes in sort of when the whole system changes and and i think we found a good way to innovate to just have enough vertical integration so that we can innovate um you know in a in a, in a, in a large sense but then we still have these interfaces to the outside world that we have to adhere to and, and that's sort of a constant battle of course right so I, sure. I i wouldn't say we are not accumulating technical debt but i think um we all understand that we'll we'll do this like, the exact same thing again in a in a couple of months right so let's make sure we understand it exactly um but at the same time there every architecture project is is different ultimately right every jurisdiction has different requirements yeah Sometimes you have to have some someone... budget
0: for for technical debt, <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, yeah, because yeah. of because it is not all the same all the time. It is not like an automobile, right, where you are going to build it, exactly the exactly. same thing every
1: time. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. you know, think about it as a as a plane manufacturer, like Airbus mm-hmm. or Boeing, right? Mm-hmm. They like they make really big objects and they're very expensive, right? Mm-hmm. And and then they sell it to a provider who then customizes it to their own needs and then sells it to a user. I like that comparison a lot more, but mm. still all the planes are the same, right? It's not right. like that. It's like you're building a plane in a different environment every time. So there is a lot of customization that is oftentimes outside of what we can automate at this point. And and, and the typical project workflow of SD, DD, and so on, it's, it's still happening. But um, I think we are all sort of driven by the fact that we know Next time, it'll be more automated. It will be easier. It will be more streamlined.
0: And again, getting back to that focus of project type really helps enable that to happen, mm-hmm. right? Because if you were, the next project was going to be a different typology, then you you probably would sweep it under the rug and, and just move on, right? Because But because yeah. you know it it likely applies to the next one, you're going to bring it back up. You're going to document it. You're going to figure out how you're going to solve that the next time or at least do better. I I I do see like that. There's the ability to focus like that is is a really big deal in this this kind of yeah. business for sure.
1: And and that focus is a focus on the market segment. You know, so I would I would define it more like like what's the market that that you work in, what kind of variation is required within that market, and and so I think the reason why we decided to go with the mid-to-high-rise urban housing is not not only because Mass timber lends itself to that, it's also because there is an incredible market emerging because yeah. um, the city of Vancouver just just um, um, approved the Vancouver plan and the Broadway plan, which foresees a lot of um, lots um, along our arteries to be rezoned to accommodate 8, 12, um, 15, 20-story buildings. Mm. And the same is happening in Toronto and in many other cities um, in, in, in the U.S. as well. So, um there is a need for for that solution. And it's multifamily, it's 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 high rise, right? So they have similarities. Um there's a scale to it of as well, right? They have thirty, fifty, hundred units. Um, there there's a combination with commercial spaces, um, so all of that needs to be figured out and then then you have a pretty wide market to serve, right? So so then the investment makes sense.
0: And so is are all of your clients developers? yes okay yeah so that that's another kind of different thing that a lot of firms some firms are totally dealing with developers all the time and then others are not dealing with Mm -hmm. developers at all right and so it is kind of interesting to think about all of the different pieces that are playing into this with market demands and value proposition with design with mass timber with see like what all the things that we've talked about during this episode are really playing into this ecosystem that you've defined that you want to play in and again with the focus it just it just gives you the ability to continually refine the process and deliver more and more value where you're because you're not distracted by other owner types other project types Mm -hmm. i mean i can even imagine that you have a pretty limited set of locations that you're Decided to go for, at least early on, right? Because of the you know the constraints, and that actually helps you make make decisions and, and develop these tools.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's um, Certain jurisdictions, certain cities, and, and we don't even have to think too much about it because you know if you just focused on Toronto, um, you, you would have easy. more than enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we could build a thousand factories in in North America. It. It, there's just so much demand for housing. I think it's and, so
0: interesting that you even say that because like I think again if, if somebody listened to this whole episode who's been part of a, a firm for a long time and there how could we even compete with this like there it would be mm-hmm. impossible for us to there's so much work out there. there is like you you just said if you only focused on Toronto, you you would be busy for the rest of your life as one yeah. company just solving for that. And, and I think that's, that's something that keeps coming up, uh, you know, as we talk about the housing needs, I mean, especially with housing, right. Over the next uh, 30 years, it's just the, the the needs are so big. There is so much work for everyone. And the only way to actually accomplish that is by coming up with systems like these to produce projects at scale, like quantity, right. Of units that need to be built over the next 30 years is an insane number and so there is a lot of work out there but does doesn't mean that it fits the existing business models and i think that's what you guys have shown success in is like you you've developed a company around this business model and i'm sure you're open to even adapting that over time as as need be but this is one of those things where it just be, it doesn't fit the traditional business model and that's okay we're going to we're still going to add value as architects in this space it's better than not adding value as architects in this space i can only imagine that these units yeah. are more attractive because of the value of real architectural design
1: yeah absolutely yeah and and you know my hope is that um we will see in the next 10 20 years an ecosystem of product oriented companies to emerge and they could be motivated by prefab they could be motivated by architecture they could, they could have it all, right? They, they, could, they could outsource the manufacturing and there might be an ecosystem of prefab companies that accommodate that, right? That, that have the technology just like Foxconn builds the iPhones for Apple, right? Apple doesn't manufacture it themselves, right. but car companies manufacture cars themselves. Mm-hmm. But there are all these different business models. I would just hope that there would be an ecosystem of many different products and they would prove to be better they would have better quality, they would be faster, they would be more affordable. And and so um, we, in that, in that sense, we welcome competition because it, it just shows that the model works. And, yeah. and there is enough for many, many companies like us to come out and, and um, develop some kind of product for some kind of market.
0: Can you speak at all to the the idea of risk versus reward in this? Because you're not just playing the role of the designer at the early phase of design, but you're actually doing the production and beyond. So mm-hmm. was that an easy decision for Intelligent City to make to to move into those roles to get a bigger piece of the pie, but also have control over quality and process? I mean, I can see how they're all interwoven right it, it's not like you're doing a handoff you're not just producing yeah. plans for somebody else to to build off of so it's different but i i would assume that that also plays a role in kind of the success of this model
1: yeah there's certainly risk involved in making building components that you know you have a warranty on and um mm-hmm. you know that those buildings then have to stand the test of time but it's The the counter-argument for that and the reason why we engaged with manufacturing was that we simply didn't see a different way. We didn't see a way to find a, a different prefab company that could then maybe install robots for us and then make our components. So you would, you know, it would be really difficult to interface um, with a company like that, and and they would come with their own agenda and their mm. own fears and and, and more and bubbles, goals, right? more more fighting bubbles, right? It, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Avoid that. Um, right. Just just the interface of shop drawings is is incredibly just if you if you ever go through that process as a designer of making yeah. shop drawings and and, and and then tendering it out and talking to those suppliers and trades. It's so difficult, and so much information gets lost along the way too. So, um, we, to some degree, we don't even need to make shop drawings, except for the fact that they need to be signed off by an engineer, right? Um, but the, the data just flows directly through and goes onto the shop floor, and I think that's just that's just it just relieves you so much that that, that you know that there's a team there that knows exactly what to do. Um, so, I think that's that's one reason, and actually the other reason. That I can think of right now is, um, is also that the technology to make building components like this doesn't exist. And we are in some way also building an industry of prefab technology mm-hmm. um, for mass timber high rise. Like there's lots of machines and equipment out there for stick frame automation, and they, they have these nailing bridges right, that kind of put together the stick frame wall, um, more or less automated, and that's pretty fascinating. But um, the technology for building assembly lines um, in mass form for mass building components doesn't really exist. And so we really needed to um, think about that ourselves. And um, even talking to um, integrators that, that um, integrate um, robotic or um, automation equipment in factories, such as car factories, they themselves also have to rethink when they work with us because of that amount of flexibility. And, Customization that the equipment needs to provide, so there, we are building. We're kind of feeling like we're building that industry from from scratch. that mm-hmm. hasn't existed yet, like in the car industry. There's so many suppliers out there, right? That make parts, and in, in our industry, that's really not the case. So, so that was also a realization that we had.
0: Yeah, it, the this whole idea of everything that you model matters. <laughs> is so true in what you're doing. And I because I think again kind of one of the biggest disconnects in traditional practice is the people who do care so much about technology and the process and they're they're doing real BIM that mm-hmm. ends up in sheets of PDFs and that disconnect that happens right there. That mm-hmm. that also doesn't exist in the model that you guys have have built and implemented where everything from the early parametric design to the modeling to the the algorithms that you use to drive the 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 jointing between the elements and goes to the machine that goes you know the machine code to the robot to the factory floor to the production to the fabric all of it all matters right you're not mm-hmm. doing it for for a different incentive than a builder like so many architects are drawing a set of plans to get a permit where the builder needs needs something a little bit different than that, right? If 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 an architect were, were to go to a builder and say, what do you actually need for the details, mm-hmm. right? Versus what yeah. they already know how to do, and they're not going to do it based on how you drew it. They're going to do it on how they know to do it. There's so many kind of misaligned incentives in that process. You don't have that in the intelligent city model.
1: Yeah. I mean, we are still... Somewhat connected to that process because we do need to submit permit applications, right? We need a building mm-hmm. permit, a mm-hmm. development permit, and so you do need to, to submit, um, you know, a 400-page PDF or you know, 17 printed copies um, right. to the to the city hall. Right. Um, so so that still happens, and, right. and we're trying to and to automate that as well, um, in some ways. Uh, but the um, the what would you call it? The 3D model, the the information model. Right. It's called an IM. Um, yeah, the, the, the one that contains all of it mm-hmm. is is beyond what you do for BIM. I'm, I'm I'm not sure what the exact incentive was to establish BIM, but in most cases, when I see it, what I see is still representational geometry. Right? It's like the 2D drawings, a representational sure. drawing, and the the 3D BIM model is representational 3D model design and intent. It, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and it contains. You know, there's a there's a block, and it contains a single um, um, geometry that is actually representing multiple layers on a wall, right? Whereas our model that is automatically generated contains all the actual parts. So mm-hmm. in some ways, you know, as an example, um, the drywall, the 4 by 8 sheet of drywall is its own element, it's part. right? Okay. It's, it's a part, yeah, exactly. And, and so that is captured in our model, and mm. including, of course, the metadata that comes with it identifies what kind of material it is and what kind of product it is. and So, so it's, it's, it's more than that. And sometimes it's also less than that because um, for some of the manufacturing processes, we don't need the geometry. We, we only need the instructions for the machines. And those might be actually less geometric information than what you would need visually, right? So we don't actually need to model the screw or the nail, we, we need to model a point that indicates that the robot will put a nail there. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's so are different requirements. And yeah. so that makes a very interesting 3D model. Um, but yeah, it's kind of kind of ignores what what BIM is about in a way. And at the same time, we also then need to make BIM models so that we can collaborate with outside consultants as well. So again, it's sort of an internal process and comes, it comes with an interface to the outside world. Yeah.
0: This has been a fascinating conversation. Is there is there anything that, that we missed that, that you want to talk about or or to put out there to the audience?
1: I think we touched on most things. I made a list uh, before, nice. we had a, yeah, before we started. How very German of you. Yeah. Things. <laughs> <laughs> great. Yeah. No, it's been great.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to include links to everywhere people can follow intelligent city and you on in the mm-hmm. show notes for the episode and thanks so much for having this conversation it's it's absolutely fascinating and i i think we'll we'll i at some point have to do a round two i i'm hoping that um you know as things are changing so rapidly i'm sure that mm-hmm. you know everything that's happened in 3 to 4 years that you said that's going to accelerate like you guys are just going to be at another level uh in in so much less time than that that i think we'll we'll definitely want to do a follow-up and see how things have changed in the not too distant future
1: yeah thanks so much evan
0: thank you to avail for their support of this podcast episode visit getavail.com to see their holistic approach to content management today this show is part of the gabled media podcast network you can see all the shows at gablemedia.com that's g-a-b-l-m-e-d-i-a dot you can help support what i'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on apple podcasts to help get the word out and of course share it with your friends I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for Troxel. Talk to you soon.